This is Podco Media Networks. Welcome to the Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. Today's guest is Thomas Bjorkman, author of The World We Create, From God to Market. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me on your show, Philip. I read the book, and before we really get into it, because I think the book is a collection that is part philosophy, it's part history, it projects us a potential future. And I have a ton of questions about the genesis of the book and what it's all about. But why don't you give me a sense of your background and why you took on writing the world we create? Thank you for asking. So I'm Swedish, come from a humble middle class family background, was the first in my family, both on my father's and mother's sides to have the opportunity to go to university studied mathematics and physics. I was completely fascinated by trying to understand the world. And uh, back then, I tried to do that from a natural science perspective. And I thought that I would become a professional academic. And I would probably have been that if it wasn't for the sake that I was equally interested in influencing the world, creating the world, as understanding the world. So uh, after studying mathematics and physics, I become an entrepreneur. And I've started about 20 different companies or businesses, some small and unsuccessful, but at least three major ventures in uh, IT, in property, and in banking. Started a banking business more or less from scratch in Sweden in the beginning of the 90s. And during the 90s, as you might remember, the, the markets just kept going up. So it was very easy to make your clients happy. Those were good those, times. Uh, well, those were good times. And uh, I moved down with my young family to Switzerland in, in the middle of the 90s. I've been living outside Sweden since then. Sold my banking business to one of the large Swiss banking groups and had to commit to remain as chairman of the banking group in Scandinavia for, for a number of years. But when that contract ended uh, in 2006, I was just very happy to leave both the financial world and the business world and to really go back a little bit to my academic interest and uh, try to understand the world a bit deeper. And uh, during my years in business, specifically in banking, I came to understand that the natural science way of looking at the world is uh, a very powerful way of looking at the world and uh, quite a unique way of looking at the world that we should have super respect for. But it's also a limited way of looking at the world and that we need more ways to understand the world, if we should really see the world in its full complexity. And that was made absolutely most clear to me in the traditional economic thinking and the traditional economic modeling around the market that I experienced as a banker really didn't make any practical sense at all, mm -hmm. <laughs> to, to say the least. So to understand the market and make money in the market, I found a sociological approach much more enlightening than a traditional neoclassical economic approach. That was really the starting point. It was a curiosity to try to understand where we are as humanity right now and how we come to this place in history. And perhaps most interestingly, what can we do, if anything, to get out of this situation, this predicament that I think many today agree that we are in, whether we come from an environmental perspective or a social justice perspective or just psychological well-being perspective. We can see many crises out there. And one of my conclusions in my book is that these different crises are not really different. They are all just symptoms on one underlying meta-crisis. And that crisis is the fact that 
this wonderful natural science, enlightenment, philosophy way of looking at the world that we adopted perhaps 200 years ago. And that has been super successful in giving us all these wonderful things like modern medicine and human rights and democracy and all these wonderful things. This perspective now is starting to reach its limits of its generative power. And we need to broaden our uh, ways of looking at the world to really get us out of this situation. It's interesting that you mentioned this idea of crisis and framing these things as interrelated crisis, and which is pretty much the definition of wicked problems, right? That if you want to make us solve for hunger, that is not just an issue of food scarcity, but it could be an economic issue. It can be a government-related issue. It can be an environmental issue. It encompasses all of these different factors that kind of intersect and overlay with one another. And I want to take that concept with this idea of the natural sciences that you highlighted and the world that you were in which is an economic world. And I I come from a similar world. I I worked at Goldman for many years. So listeners of the show are used to me kind of interlaying that former Wall Street experience into the work and experiences that I've had post working at Goldman. But it sounds as if there's a challenge. This meta narrative is challenged by the stories we might have told ourselves about the world that we live in. Right. Mm, that yeah. much of economics, just to use economics as an example, is posited as rules of natural law, when in reality, they're rules that we have agreed upon as a society, more or less. Right. Like they have no basis in the way in which the earth works in the same way that physics and, and math do. And here, of course, we are all a bit confused and the postmodern philosophy is very helpful in understanding these sort of socially constructed aspects of our world. But at the same time, much of these postmodern philosophical thinking is also very confusing. Because if you start to believe that everything in the world is socially constructed, then you are also on the wrong track. So it's really to understand where science and natural science can really help us understand the world and where we need to employ postmodern ways of seeing the world and realizing that the world is socially constructed. So one example I usually take, and it's in the book there as as well, is that we as humans, to survive in today's society, we need oxygen, we need air, we need oxygen, and we need money. And for us as individuals, these two needs meet us as uh, objective reality. But there is a very distinct difference between oxygen, our need of oxygen, and our need of money. And you could most easily understand that by saying that even if the whole of humanity came together and said, we don't think that we as humans should be dependent on oxygen any longer. We want to change that. We couldn't do that. Whereas if all of humanity or even just a nation state came together and said, We don't want to use money any longer as the tool for dividing our uh, added value in society. We want to find another way of distributing our goods. Then money would be worthless tomorrow and we wouldn't be depending on that. We might be depending on something else, but uh, money would immediately lose its value. And then we can see that it's really just a human idea that we collectively believe in. But as it is part of this collective belief, our collective imaginary, as some people call it, it's still very strong for us as individuals. Because when I've been to my 7-Eleven and I'm checking out, I can't tell uh, the cashier that, you know, money is just an idea, it's just a social construct, so let's forget about that. I would end up in jail. So as an individual, I have to accept this collective imaginary. But as a collective, we could uh, change it tomorrow if we wanted. The sad aspect here is that many times we really confuse these two different types of reality in the way that we sometimes think that we somehow as humanity can 
negotiate with the planetary boundaries and the environmental reality that we could negotiate with the planetary boundaries, but that the market forces we just have to obey. When it's, of course, the opposite. We have to respect the planetary boundaries, but the market forces is very much under our human capacity to change. I think what you said there at the end is what I mean by that mixing of the narrative in that the planetary story has become the market story where I think most people don't see a distinction between the two. We can always innovate ourselves out of the problem that we have created by not respecting the planetary boundaries, right? The market, if we can just use a certain amount of ingenuity, if we can just flip this switch, then this impending crisis, which is wrapped up in the planetary boundary, that is both physical and I would argue psychological as well. Absolutely. I would definitely stress the psychological part of it. And I've been engaged for many years in this international association called the Club of Rome that is very active in the environmental space ever since we came out with the report or the book Limits to Growth in the beginning of the 70s, where we were really pointing out the planetary boundaries. But I think that we are slowly also in the scientific community starting to realize that we will never solve the environmental problems just by issuing more scientific reports about CO2 levels and heating. This is not just a scientific problem. It's also a psychological problem. It's a problem of uh, the stories that we tell ourselves, our narratives, and our meaning-making, and our values. So uh, the, the environmental crisis, to really tackle the mental crisis, we need to understand the psychological and the narrative aspects of it. One of the things you did very early on in the book, and it does parallel a, a lot with my work as an anthropologist and as a strategist, is you had a chart, and this is like in the very first few pages, laying out this sort of map of things that are simple, complicated, complex, complex, chaotic, and then kind of non-complex, chaotic, where now we're in these states of just utter anarchy. But the complex and complex chaotic were spaces where new possibilities could potentially emerge. And I want to kind of break that down a little bit as just a place to start, because I'm very much into definitions. I think if we can't agree on the definitions and the parameters of what we're discussing, it's very unlikely we're going to come to a solution. So yes, in in casual terms, we all kind of throw words around and part of our mean making as a society is to shorthand things and understand things. Having said that, I think it is important to understand differences between things that are complicated, things that are complex, because those words are used interchangeably, and they're actually very different states of being. Absolutely. Let's kind of just spend a little bit of time walking through those definitions. Yeah, and I could tie that a little bit to what we spoke about before in the way to say that traditional natural science, one of the strengths of natural science is that fairly early, with Newton and later, understood that there is there's a lot of power in our ability to take a complicated problem, and we come back to the complicated, complicated problem, and break it down into its parts. And that is what we mean by analysis. We take it down into the parts, and then we look at each part in turn and try to understand it. And then we put it together and we try to understand the whole. And that is something that has been very, very powerful way of making inventions and understanding complicated things. But, and here comes the definition and the difference, most living systems are not just complicated, like a complicated clockwork. They are actually complex, meaning that 
they have got so many independent parts moving in relation to each other that it is not just difficult to determine a future state of that system. It is actually impossible. It is actually impossible. And those living systems, they all of a sudden start to show very interesting uh, properties that complicated systems do not have. For example, they can self-organize, and they can self-organize in new ways. And sometimes they can even go through a phase shift, a transition, a transformation, where completely new properties, emergent properties, becomes available. And that is really what is separating complex systems from complicated systems. Complicated systems can, in principle, be understood by looking at its parts, and all parts have a fixed relationship to each other, whereas complex systems do not. They are living, moving, self-organizing. A lot of understanding of everything in the world can come out of applying this relatively new scientific way of looking at phenomena as complex, self-organizing systems. And uh, the scientific breakthroughs in this area have coming relatively recent. So it's during the last 50 years or something like that, that we have started to be able to understand these complex systems. So just to give a few examples Mm -hmm. of how this works and why I put it at the beginning of my book. So if we start with Big Bang, then there were, were just first particles. And these particles, they started to self-organize and forming atoms. And these atoms later formed molecules. And then going on even uh, later in the physical evolution of the universe, these molecules started to uh, become more and more complicated. And eventually we had uh, molecules that formed life. And life is nothing but molecules. Life is nothing but chemistry, but it is an emergent phenomenon from chemistry. You can never, by just studying chemistry, understand life. Life is a completely new phenomenon. And then if you look at the biological evolution of life, you can see new species as emergent phenomena within the evolution. And then eventually you have the evolution of nervous systems and you have the evolution of minds and cognition. And then at some point in that evolution, you have a mind that becomes self-aware, the human mind. And that mind is perhaps nothing but the result of billions of neurons firing, but you can never understand the phenomenon of consciousness by just looking at uh, the neurons. might be nothing more than neurons, but there are so many neurons, so complex, self-organizing, organized, that this new emergent phenomenon of consciousness all of a sudden emerge. And then just the last step, you as an anthropologist, you know that then it's not just enough that we have these self-aware, conscious minds. At some point, we humans very uniquely amongst all animals, are starting to develop a symbolic language and a symbolic representation. And we can start to manifest ideas in our consciousness outside in culture. And we start building all these different cultures. And then the cultural evolution starts. And culture is an emergent phenomenon out of the human consciousness. And right now we are in a culture that has invented all these wonderful things like religion and gods and markets and all of that. And we are now finally starting to understand how this process of creation of culture and the collective imaginary, how that is working. And that before we have seen both God and perhaps the market as something natural out there. But now we realize that these are all human constructs and very random constructs in many, many respects and constructs that might have been very useful 
a thousand years ago or a hundred years ago, but might today not be that beneficial for humanity any longer. And there's two things that kind of came out of there. One, I, I kind of wrote down as you were kind of going through complicated versus complex, and this will tie very much to this idea of consciousness. For example, the narratives that we tell ourselves, the way in which we make sense of the world we're in, oftentimes you'll hear human beings are like the ultimate machine or our brains are like personal computers. And this is how we take in information. So we organize and design a lot of our world with those examples in mind, which to me would be a narrative that is talking about us as being complicated. This comparison to us as a machine, we're in reality, we're complex, right? Exactly. Exactly. And it's important to remember that the many of the enlightenment philosophers that really created this worldview or paradigm that we are living in right now, and again, as I said, has been very helpful for humanity so far. Many of those philosophers, like, for example, Descartes, yeah. he actually He's thought, one of my favorites to reference. <laughs> yeah, he actually thought that our mind was a complicated machine, just like a very complicated clockwork. And with that model, then you think that your consciousness, your mind is actually working as a clock, or you can have some problem. You can have some sand in the machinery, and then you need to fix it, and then it's working again. But in that way of seeing our mind and our consciousness, then lifelong consciousness development doesn't really make sense. And of course, as the German idealist philosophers like Schiller, Goethe, Herder, von Humboldt pointed out, this is not fully capturing the strength of the mind and the consciousness. They already in the beginning of the 1800s pointed out, just like you just mentioned, that, that our mind is not a complicated machinery. It's actually a complex organizing, self-organizing system that is under development throughout life. And they called that developmental process by the German name of Bildung, which means something like formation or realization of a potential. It could be interesting to mention when we are now talking about this view of our mind as a complex developing system that is constantly evolving through our life, or at least have the potential to do that if it's challenged properly. That was a a view of our consciousness that was very dominating all the Scandinavian or all the Nordic countries 150 years ago, and that actually prompted us to create an educational system that was focused on this consciousness development. Leon Anderson and I, we, we argue in our book, The Nordic Secret, that this understanding of lifelong inner development was actually one of the major factors that took the Nordic countries that 150 years ago were the poorest non-democratic agrarian societies on the outskirts of Europe to just a few generations later become the happiest, richest, most stable democracies in, uh, in the world. That was a focus on life, learn, inner development, understanding that consciousness can and do evolve, and that it's a very important function of society and societal culture is actually to support that consciousness development. A lot of times when I'm in conversations like this and we're talking about the cultural narratives that we're telling ourselves, it seems like we are very much still trapped in an industrial age slash market driven type of story, which is not compatible with a story about our planetary abundance and boundaries. But if you go back prior to that story, it seems like, you know, I I recently spent some time in Mexico. And if you spend time in and around Kemetic slash Egyptian cultures, there was a high connection to consciousness, understanding of human beings and our place in the universe but also a very high connection to the way in which the earth 
supported us as part of that consciousness journey. I'm curious about as much as we are learning about how to solve our planetary challenges and crises today, are there lessons to be learned if we go back into our past? One of the things I often offer when I'm doing client work is everything we need to do, we already know. You know, we've just kind of forgotten it, (laughs) you know, so I'm curious about that. I agree with you. This focus on uh, our ability to study the natural world from an outside objective perspective that is characteristic for science, that came at a cost. That came at the cost of us neglecting the inner subjective aspects of our human existence because they were not measurable in the same way and they had distorted the picture. So as long as we thought that, like Aristotle, that the stone is falling because the stone has a will or an inner purpose or a telos or something like that, we were not fully understanding how gravity was working. So by getting rid of that, that actually helped us to develop our understanding of the natural world. But at the same time, we lost a lot of our ability to understand our human world that we had in the indigenous uh, traditions and thinkings, and and also to a large extent in, in the world religions that the Enlightenment philosophers rejected. So I would say that, and I argue in the world we create, that we now need to develop our way of looking upon ourselves, on each other, on society, and on nature, and really up grade our worldview again. Just like we upgraded our worldview, for example, when we went from the dogmatic religious worldview before the Enlightenment into the scientific, we need to do it again. And it's not so much inventing, and I totally agree that with what you just said, it's not so much totally inventing a new worldview from scratch to really look at and integrate what we as humanity has already uh, known and looking at what insights from the um, indigenous traditions should we bring with us and can be helpful today. And I would say definitely, as you point out, uh, the realization of uh, our interconnectedness that we have lost. The Enlightenment philosophers wanted us to believe that we were independent, isolated individuals who could maximize our own utility and by doing that, our own happiness. No. We now know from neuroscience and other ways that we are much, much more interconnected, both individuals between us, but also we as humans and humanity with nature. And that is something that indigenous cultures have known since uh, eternity. That is something that we need to pick up. I also think that from the pre-modern societies, from the great religions, that there are many insights there. The importance of narrative the importance of our inner world, on virtues, on also consciousness development. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, in in many of the world religions, and some more explicit than others, but certainly, you know, in the Buddhism is all about consciousness development. But so is also the, at least the mystical traditions within uh, Christianity, the Sufi tradition in Islam, and the Kabbalah in the Jewish religion are all about our lifelong and supporting our lifelong consciousness development. From modernity, we can take the view of science and the power of science of understanding the natural world. And then from postmodern thinking, the realization that a huge part of our human world is just socially constructed and that language and culture are influencing us in so many ways that language and culture, at least culture is a, a very much a human construct, but that is helping us, but also carrying hidden power structures that needs to be made visible and all of that. And then we need to integrate all of these insights and to see that they all are perspectives on our world that are partial truths. None of them contain the whole truth. And the whole truth is uh, when you can hold all of these perspectives, even if they are in some way conflicting perspectives can hold them and and see a more holistic. And some of them are acting on us quite invisibly in a way. Like I remember in the book, there's a section where 
you go through the stories that we're telling ourselves. So we have like this market story, the neoliberal story, then there's the postmodern story. And it's like they become so ubiquitous. It's like the Dave Foster Wallace, you know, fish asking where the water is, right? Like, how's the water today? And the fish are like, what's water, right? It's like, we're swimming in these stories that are so pervasive. It's very difficult to tell where one story begins, the other one ends, and where they support one another as well, right? Absolutely. And and what makes this metaphor uh, even stronger is, of course, that the fish never created the water. So we can excuse the fish for not noticing the water. But we humans, we created our culture. We created our collective imaginary. And if we should have any possibility to take responsibility for this human creation and make sure that we recreate and develop our collective imaginary as the world is changing, and not the least the technological evolution, which is again good news for humanity because hopefully with this terrific technological evolution that has been going on for the last couple of hundred years and specifically the last 50 years is hopefully making it possible for us all humans not to have to work at least 40 hours every week, 40 years of our lives, but we could move into hopefully a world of abundance within planetary boundaries. But if you look at this world through the human invention of the labor market, then of course, uh, this is bad news. This looks like mass unemployment. Whereas with a different collective imaginary, this could be human paradise. So uh, with technological development, our ability to actually be able to see the water we are swimming in and understanding that the human water we are swimming in is a human collective construct and that that makes it possible for us to update that when that is necessary. And that's really why I chose as the title of my book, The World We Create, and with an emphasis on the we, because we tend to forget that it's actually we that are creating all these different uh, aspects. And again, not the least, the concept of religion and God or the concept of the market. Human constructs could be different. This technology piece, I think, is very interesting because it does have, and there's an optimistic element to it, right? And then I think the postmodern side of that, there is a certain level of cynicism that's kind of cooked in, into the way that model works. And so when I look at the technology that we have, it seems like it is technology that is very much in a postmodern frame in the sense that it doesn't so much leap us forward as it just parodies what we already have. I'll just use one example of, let's say Uber, something like Uber or Lyft or any kind of car sharing thing. The mode of transportation is still, the imagination is the same. It's a car, it's fossil fuel burning, it's stuck in traffic, it's all of those things. The technology of how I'm getting to the car is kind of like the parody of the technology in the sense that we're not going forward or even saying, and obviously Scandinavian countries are a little better than this, but I'm a public transportation guy. So I'm like, shouldn't the innovation be in making the public transportation better, reimagining that rather than just putting me into my own little market box, right? So the public transportation is the collective and then the Uber or Lyft is the market solution, right? Like I get my own car, my own this, right? So I'm just curious about that technology piece and can we make a distinction there? Do you think it's possible to? Mm, No, no, absolutely. And I think that, again, with the Enlightenment worldview and with the emphasis there on individuals and the idea that we can all sort of uh, independently of each other pursue our own happiness and well-being, 
that that has made it so natural for us today in the West to uh, realize and pursue individual freedom, individual creativity, individual innovation. Whereas many aspects of our world are not individual. I would argue that happiness is, is not an individual aspect, but forget that for a moment. Certainly things like language or trust in a society or even societal culture are not individual goods. Those are things that we create together. And when we realize, for example, that the fundamental rules, the constitutive rules of the market or other aspects of our collective imaginary is actually under our collective agency, even if they are not under our individual agency. If we do not realize the amount of freedom we can create by actually exercising that collective agency, we are leaving huge amount of potential freedom on the table, so to say, to use mm-hmm. the investment banking language. And that's, of course, stupid, but equally good that we are today to exercise individual freedom. Equally bad are we, or worthless, on exercising collective agency and collective freedom. To tie that to your example there with transportation, a good way to understand how we can actually shift this collective imaginary is to take the example of Sweden. We were driving on the left-hand side of the road in Sweden up until 67. I could not, as an individual, take the decision that I think it's better to drive on the right-hand side because everyone else in the world is driving. Not really, but many of our neighbors are driving on the right. I would have been killed. But then we decided collectively that one night in September in 67, we should all shift and drive on the right-hand side. We did that. And all of a sudden, the collective imaginary, the collective reality shifted. But we had to do it all at the same time. So many of the things that you are asking for here and when we see technology, it's so easy for us to take the technology that can be used individually and to put that into practice. Whereas things where we need to come together and agree on either how to apply certain forms of technology, just like in collective transportation, or just changing the rules for how we can use technology and what it's useful for or not. And not the least there our inability to sort of agree on rules for social media, for example. I think it's a good example. As Zuckerberg has pointed out many times, even for a single dominating actor to go against the market forces is not that easy. So you need some sort of collective regulation and decision on how to use this technology and then for the market actors to follow. I love that you brought up the example about the switching from one side of the road to the other, because I jotted down that note here with the Swedish example of driving and what you term in the book as the overnight reality. Yeah. And I thought to myself that in my near lifetime of the more recent, let's call it 20 years, we've had these sort of overnight realities that have been shocks. And so some of these are, of course, from a Western where I'm sitting perspective, but in my life, I think of 9-11, right? Like yeah. I viewed 9-11, I was on the 50th floor of Goldman Sachs watching it happen in real time. There was Brexit, overnight change, Trump, these overnight shocks. You kind of alluded to it in your example, kind of talking about this action for the collective. How do we turn some of these called overnight realities into new social realities that can really push a new meta narrative, this way in which we can better live our lives that is a collective actualization. So even in my thinking, I'm trying to move away from the Maslow's self-actualization, which I think is a very individual market story that has been co-opted. So how do we do a collective story that takes into account these planetary boundaries that still allow us to not just survive, but thrive, right? Again, that's why I'm in the first part of my book. I take this very long historical perspective, actually, from Big Bang, but then going through the human history, through the Middle Ages and all the way up to, to today, 
for us to really see that we have many times as humanity both changed our collective imaginary, we have changed our socially constructed world, we have reinvented our worldview and shifted worldview many times, we have shifted our narratives many times. And these shifts have, in most cases, if not in all cases, been effects of technological development that has changed our way of living. All the way from going back to when we invented farming and we gave up our nomadic lifestyle as hunter-gatherers and became farmers. And then we invented new stories about what it meant to be tied to a certain piece of land, and we started to have stories about land ownership and all of that. But up until now, these shifts in worldviews and in narratives, we never made them self-conscious. It's always been more or less trial and error and random, and we have had many civilizations and many stories going on in parallel. And even when we have had huge civilizational collapses, like when the Roman Empire collapsed after a thousand years dominating a large part of Europe. That still didn't affect the whole world. We had other possibilities for other civilizations than to thrive. And we had a trial and error and evolutionary process. The difference now is that technological development goes so fast that we can't wait a couple of hundred years for these experiments to play out. And we cannot afford to experiment or to chance because now we are more or less just one interconnected global civilization. And if this civilization collapses, it will most likely be together with an environmental collapse and the whole humanity could collapse or even go extinct. So this time, we need to start to to become aware of these things. We need to start to see the water. And we need to see that we are actually creating this water and that the water that we have created now is starting to become toxic. It's not healthy for us to swim in this water any longer. So we need to think, how can we change it? But then we come to the problem that changing the water needs collective decisions. We might not need the whole of humanity, but you and I cannot just start because we think that we are clever and having this clever conversation and talking about this. And now we decide that we want to change our water. No, it doesn't work. When you come to the checkout point at 7-Eleven, you need to pay. And if you are going to drive your car, you need to fill up with gas. Money is imaginary. And you and I, we, we, we can say that, wow, the thing, if we had fast uh, electric trains all over the US, all over the Europe, how wonderful that would be. But Even if we are prepared to pay $1,000 for a train ticket, that wouldn't buy us a train ticket. That's where we have our predicament right now, that the changes that we need to make are urgent, but they are collective. And we are so good at making individual decisions and exercise individual agency, but the collective agency that we, we suck. Yeah, uh, And we do not just suck on, on collective agency, but just as with individual humans, before we can act, we need to make sense of the situation. So we need sense-making. And we are fairly good at individual sense-making, even if uh, social media and other uh, aspects of our world right now is trying to make it very difficult also in our individual sense-making. But okay, say that we are managing our individual sense-making, but collective sense-making, no. We're not managing that. We are not I even agree. trying to do it. I agree. And this is always frustrating to me because I leave so much on the table, but now we're out of time for the main thrust of this. So I want to get to our section called Off the Dome, where I'm going to just ask you some quick rapid fire questions just to get some quick bullet thoughts. All right. So if you're ready, I'm ready. Sure. So you travel a lot. I've been connected to you long enough to see that you're moving, you're always in different spaces. What's one of the best places you've seen in 2019? And what are you looking forward to in 2020? I travel a lot, but I still move in fairly regular patterns, spending time in London, Stockholm, Berlin. I was at the end of last year in in Costa Rica, and I really like that. I like the friendliness. 
of the country and of the people and uh, also the environmental policy of Costa Rica. That was the first time and I became a fan of Costa Rica. And what are you looking forward to in 2020? Is there a new location that you haven't yet seen that's on your calendar? There are many, many places. I try to, for environmental reasons, limit my uh, traveling. Mm -hmm. And I will try to limit my intercontinental traveling during 2020. That's a commitment. If we forget about that and just put something hypothetical on my travel list, I would say the southern part of South America and uh, Antarctica are still completely blank spots. And uh, I would very much like to go there, but uh, I don't think I will. Now, you've had a career that you've described to us that has spanned kind of traditional businesses within finance and technology, and now clearly you're in a different space thinking about these complex collective actions. Having said that, what is one of the best pieces of advice you've received along this journey? I think that is definitely, even if that is one of my strengths, it's also one of my limitations, and that is not to be too just cognitive but try to be more embodied and listen to my intuition, spend more time in nature, connecting to nature and listening to intuition and also to dare to become more vulnerable and authentic, working on those aspects of myself. For some reason, I keep getting that advice, so there must be some truth in it. It's good advice. It's always good advice. Now, my next two questions are very Swedish related. And I don't even know if you have a car, but if I think about obviously the two big manufacturing, there's Volvo and there's Saab. Which one, my friend? You can only pick one. Saab does not exist any longer and Volvo is not Swedish any longer. Oh, really? Oh, that's Volvo true. Volvo is Chinese and Saab does not exist that's for many, 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 many years right. or, or even generations. Even generations. <laughs> there was this sort of, in Sweden, should you drive a Volvo, should you drive a Saab? And I was definitely on, on the Saab side. When it was around, you were in the Saab yeah. camp. I, is- I was in the, in, this, in the Saab camp. It was a more um, sporty car, but also more innovative engineering. I liked the, the forward wheel drive. Okay. Whereas the Volvo was much more family and safety and the power on the back two wheels. What's the English language for that? I have not owned a car in 19 years. Okay. Okay. <laughs> no idea. Uh, okay. So the power the was least... in the back there. And, the, and of course, in Scandinavia with the icy roads, in winter, it makes so much more sense to have your propulsion and the drive on the front. Okay. I should also say that I haven't had a car in, in Sweden for more than 20 years. Okay. <laughs> so we're yeah. in the same camp, me and you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. My final off the dome is a food related question. Meatballs or herring? Two stereotypical Swedish foods. <laughs> I go to Ikea all the time. Yeah. So yeah. where do we fall down on that? Well, I make it easy for myself. Swedish cuisine, herring is a starter. And meatballs, a main course. So you don't so actually I, I, have to so choose. I, so I, no, so I start with the herring and then go for the meatballs. Okay, fair enough. The best choice is to not have to make a choice at all. So our last segment is called The Drop. And this is a chance for myself and a guest to share something that they're thinking about that they would love to share with our listeners. It can be anything at all. So do you have a drop for us? I would like to share a book, a recommendation, a book by two recent friends of mine. I actually read the book before I, I became friends with them. It's Giles Hutchins and Laura Storm, and their book is called Regenerative Leadership, The DNA of Life-Affirming 21st Century Organizations. And the interesting thing is that this book is more or less telling the same story as I do in the world we create, but from a completely different perspective. It's a different cut and a cut that might be more easily digested for the, shall we say, the the non-scientists or coming more from, uh, I come from more philosophical and anthropological and sociological perspective. This comes more from a leadership and organizational 
but also environmental perspective, but essentially telling the same story. So regenerative leadership by Giles Hutchins and Laura Storm. That's my drop. Okay. My drop is actually a place this week. One of my favorite museums in the world is the Met, the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And it's a space that I go to often, whether or not there's an exhibit I want to see. It's the type of museum that I'll just go to for inspiration. I agree. I find most of my inspiration in natural spaces, being outdoors. Being in New York, there's actually a lot of outdoor space. People don't really know that, but we're blessed with places like Central Park and Prospect Park. But the Met is one of those spaces that though indoors and in sort of the neoclassical traditional sense of a museum, still feels very much like a place of inspiration. So I would encourage those who come to New York to visit the Met, but wherever you are, as you listen to this show, find those cultural institutions in your city, in your town and support them. So find whatever is the Met for you, whether that's a library, another popular thing for me. And yes, visit the Met if you come to New York, but even if you don't, visit the cultural institution to which you live. This has been great. I never have enough time to go through everything, but I'm glad you're able to join me on the deep dive. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure having Thomas Bjorkman join me on the deep dive. We discussed Thomas's book, The World We Create, and how we can think through the challenges of shaping a world that works for all of us, while also examining the historical and philosophical roots of our current world narrative. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts or our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, wherever you are in your life's journey, I thank you. See you on the other side.